0: listener production this is the five of my life with me nigel marsh the series where i talk to notable people about five of their defining things the way it works is my guests always choose a favorite film book song place and possession they tell me their choices in advance so i can research them but they don't tell me why they've chosen them that's the subject of our conversation The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Deborah's podcast, The Guilty Feminist, is truly a global phenomenon with over 90 million downloads worldwide. I've been a fan of hers for a number of years, so it was a real thrill for me to chat to her about the stories behind her five. So, Deborah, welcome to Five of My Life.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Nigel. It's an unqualified delight to be here.
0: You're, you're not as delighted as I am. We're absolutely thrilled to have you on. And I have to say, welcome to the exclusive Sixer Club. That is the uh, guests that we have on because they have been nominated by other guests. And you were nominated by Mary Custis. Could you tell us a little bit about that connection?
1: The wonderful Mary Custis. Well, of course, when I was growing up, she was on the television as Effie because I was raised in Australia. um, And I I thought she was absolutely phenomenal. And then I have a podcast called The Guilty Feminist, which is uh, always done in front of a live audience. And we are very fortunate to have a big audience in Australia and New Zealand. And we come out and we really try and tour every year. Obviously in 2020, it's been a bit of a an understandable gap, but uh, we've always come out every year and we've built our audience out in Australia and absolutely love being there. And my producer said, oh, I think uh, we could get Mary Custis to come on because she's touring with the new Effie show. And I was like, 100%. And he, the producer, Jeff Ring, said, I never, ever, ever... In ever ask comedians for photos. I'm a producer. I don't care about photos with comedians. Also, I just wouldn't just for you know all sorts of reasons. But he said, I I have to get a photo with Effie. I just have to. It's just she's just too iconic. Is it okay if I ask her? And I was like, sure. Well, I'm getting one. (laughs) She's she is a an absolute phenomenon, and she's a real supporter of other women. It doesn't surprise me. She recommended me because she's she's so full of. Ideas and advice and energy and time for you and connection and inspiration. I really do love her. You know, not everybody with Mary's pedigree would take time with somebody who is um, more emerging or you know that kind of thing. Who she's so established, and she really does. You know, she'll go for dinner with you. She'll sit and you know tell you things about the old days and talk to you about, you know, what's happening now in the Australian scene and what you should be doing. And, you know, we have such great connection. We have such a great connection and we have such great uh, conversations. We can just talk till two o'clock in the morning without noticing the time's gone by.
0: And and also she's brilliant because she's got you here. So we love Mary, but we're going to move to your choices and we start uh, traditionally with the film and and you've Mm -hmm. chosen the third black and white film that's ever been on Five of My Life. We've had Doctor Strangelove, we've had Mm -hmm. Roma uh, and you've Mm -hmm. chosen the 1940s Rosalind Russell-Carrie Glant screwball comedy, His Girl Friday.
1: Well, I think it was the first film that I saw where... The woman was at the central beating heart, and the man was running to keep up with her, and that's the defining feature of Scribble. And I just found it absolutely wonderful. Howard Hawks, who directed it, was trying to break the record for the fastest dialogue in cinema history, and he wanted it to be—he wanted it to be faster than *The Front Page*, which was the film it was based on, which itself was based on a play called *The Front Page*. And he actually had the sound engineer speed the dialogue up to make sure that happened so that you could still hear what they were saying and they, they could talk over each other. It's like an extraordinary fast train ride through this couple's relationship. And it's from an era where a woman would, you know, burst through the door and say, I could run a newspaper as well as you or any man and I can kiss as well as you or any man. But Kiss me, but don't, but do, but don't. And there's just something so compelling about that time. I mean, that was Rosalind Russell, but there was also Catherine Hepburn. So many actresses of that time who were taking and I suppose demanding roles and writers writing roles for them where all of the gender politics of that era was completely flipped. And it really inspired me when i wanted to write a film to think i don't have to write a film from this time when i see so many films where a woman is either mooning around over a man and it's it's she doesn't get any of the funny lines um or now increasingly there's a move towards feminism where you don't want the woman to be vulnerable or fragile or hurt herself and need to be rescued in any way so you have films where women are very good at kicking and punching. And so they can punch their way out of danger. They can karate their way out of situations and they respond like men traditionally respond, but not like no women I know. And so I wanted to write a film with, where the the woman is undeniably a woman, if you see what I mean, not that women have to obey any kind of gender norms and binary stereotypes. I don't mean that, but Sometimes I watch a film now and I think they're trying to make it feminist. So, in fact, a man has written a man and just had a woman play the part.
0: Now, now your fabulous film, Say My Name. I, 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 so I, I hadn't seen either His Golf Friday or Say My Name, and both of them are fantastic. Congratulations. Can, can I ask you about the process of making films. I've been trying to make a film for 10 years and and I I was in Los Angeles and I I was in my cups a bit depressed and someone said, Nigel, making a film if you aren't famous, which I most definitely am not, is like putting a steak in a room on a table and every now and then opening the door and letting somebody walk in and breathe on it. (laughs) (laughs) It will take you 10, 20, 30, 40 years if ever. What was the process Mm -hmm. uh, like of making um, Say My Name?
1: Well, I wrote the script and then I sent it out and someone said, well, this is this is wonderful. We're definitely going to make this. Um, and I had sold a screenplay with that I'd written with two friends, a different film, a uh, different screenplay. Uh, I'd written with two friends. And in 2006, first thing we ever wrote, it was a rom-com, and first thing we ever wrote, we sold to Fox Search and they said we're going to fast track it gonna fast track it so it'll be made within the next year. Um now if they tell you they're gonna fast track it, it's never going to be made. I mean we were really excited. We we're like, yeah, we're gonna be fast tracked. That's how good we are. First script, yeah, obviously, obviously. And that's what you think. You think, well obviously my talent has shone. Um and that became the biggest F- for you know, hilarious Hollywood fiasco, you can possibly imagine everything you can imagine about Hollywood. There's someone else rewrote it and it was terrible. And it was, you know, they changed everything and made it absurd. And, and we just thought it was funny because we just like, you know, just the fact we were in the game was enough. We were just like, wow, we're in Hollywood. We're having meetings in these big studios. Um, But then I just, I started to write, uh, I thought because I'm from an improvisation background I thought rather than writing this big, you know, very set three-act structure, I would have a go at writing something on my own. Um, and this speaks a little bit to the five of my life of my book, which I'll come to later when you guide me there, Nigel, uh, that uh, I thought, what if I start with a scenario and then I just write and I let my subconscious do the work? Now I've taught myself to write in a three-act structure. Let that rest and just let let that work. Let the work do the work, and you do the play. So I started um, with the scenario of what if you were in bed with someone on a one night stand and you forgot their name because I'm very bad with names, and I thought God that would be really awkward. So I started with that scenario. Let that scenario play out, and discovered that the woman was the wisecracking one of the two because it was a it was a man and woman in bed, and then I remembered. Uh, that my impro teacher, Keith Johnston, had told me that Raymond Chandler used to say, if he's write, if I'm writing a book and I don't know what should happen next, just have a man walk in with a gun. And then I'll know why he's there because someone will say, what are you doing here? Who are you? And then I'll know because he's got to have something. He's got to be there for something. So I didn't know what to do. And I would never write anything with guns ever, 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 ever. But I thought, oh, man, man walks in with a gun. So two, I had two men come in, like, and then I realised they were just opportunistic crooks because it was a Dodgy motel, so they're opportunistic crooks doing over the rooms, and then, as is the tradition with a lot of screwball comedies, this means this man and woman who are ill-suited and in the middle of an argument gets gets handcuffed together. And the original screwballs, I did not know this. The reason that the couples were handcuffed together in some way, literally often handcuffed, was because to get around the Hayes Code, because in America, men and women had to be, you know, in a um, decently distanced apart. If they were kissing, there had to be one foot on the floor. There were all these Hollywood rules, censorship rules. Now, if a hand, if a couple were handcuffed together because of the plot, it wasn't their fault that he had to put his coat around her and get behind her so that the man at the hotel desk couldn't see that they were uh, handcuffed together. And so it allowed them to get physically close and for the piece to be titillating which I didn't know, but I understood that tradition of two people stuck, uh, the mismatched couple being stuck together. So this scenario of the bad guys breaking in and one of them accidentally shooting the other, meaning now one of them had to go for help while the other one had, the, the injured one had to sit there with a gun on them. And so now they're stuck together in a hotel with a guy with a gun and so on and so on. When the police come, there's a comedy of errors, etc. And And uh, for me... I just improvised it. I just would wake up in the middle of the night and I'd go, oh, the police are going to think this. And I'd get out of bed and write it. And then the next day I'd go, oh, this is, of course, that's what she thinks. And it would just come to me. And it like, wrote that film wrote itself in two weeks. When I sold the original screenplay with my friends, everyone said it'll take 10 years to get anything to screen, 10 years. I was like, oh, that's for others, not for me. This script, everyone said they wanted to make this script. Everyone had so many producers attached, directors attached. Everyone wanted to make this script. Everyone wanted to make this script. This script, we got work on other scripts. I paid to convert my flat into a two-story flat of other scripts because of this script that everyone was going to make and no one made. And then this is the answer to your question, Nigel. Out of the blue, um, a director that I had worked with before was looking for a script and he said he wanted something like the script that he'd read years ago, Say My Name, but he said, it's not, that's not available anymore. And I went, oh, it's available again. And he went, really? Showed it to the producer. They just went, yeah, that's what we're looking for. We start shooting in August. If we don't start shooting in August, we're going to start in September. If we don't, we'll start, start in November. And I went, well, knowing films as I do, that will be January or never. But I was not counting on the fact that these people were Americans. So they started, as they said, on August the 1st. And we, I was, on the sh- I was allowed to be on the shoot the whole time, which is very unusual. Often they don't want the writer there because you'll be there with your pesky ideas and going, that's not what I meant. Uh, but the director, Jay Stern, is a, is a friend of mine and he's brilliant and is from the theatre, so wanted to collaborate. Um, so I was very lucky with that experience. But honestly, Nigel, it doesn't usually happen like that. And I'm now trying to make other things and they are as slow as your slow cooking steak. But look, we're going to have a turn any day. I feel it.
0: I love this advice. Now we're going to move from the forties to the seventies for your second choice on five in my life, which is the book written by the man that you've already mentioned, Keith Johnston. Now, like your film that I hadn't heard of, as in the His Girl Friday, I hadn't heard of this book, so I've watched and read both. So it's been a real voyage of discovery. So thank you. Um, But I'm going to just read a review, one of the reviews, because the book knocked me on my backside. One of the reviews says of this book, Impro, Improvisation and the Theatre, by Keith Johnson in 1979, it says, a mind-opening, mind-bending, mind-caressing and mind-shaping book. My life will never be the same again. And I tell you what, I mean, I'm not in impro. I wouldn't be able to improvise my way out of a plastic bag, but it was just sensational. Could you tell us about the book and why you chose it, please, Deborah? Yes, well, I
1: was a Jehovah's Witness living on the Gold Coast. And I had, yeah, I had at school been right into drama and I was a a champion debater and I was the third speaker. So I used to have to write my rebuttal, my my whole five minutes or whatever I got was rebuttal. And so I used to write that while the other team was speaking. So I knew that I was good at ad-libbing and improvising. I used to try and make it funny. I did make it funny. It was just sort of, that was sort of, that was my thing that I could do. And when I was a Jehovah's Witness, all of that was stopped. Like you couldn't do anything extracurricular. I only became a Jehovah's Witness while a teenager. Um, That's why I was able to do those extracurricular things that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And I was having to knock on doors um, full-time and work in a shop or, you know, hotel reception, part-time. And I didn't have any mental escape. And so ironically for a Jehovah's Witness, this book, Keith Johnson's Impro, became my Bible. Because it was a little mental escape from, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are basically a high control group. Everything that you think is thought out for you and you have to say the party line and the punishment for leaving is shunning, but you're not allowed any friends outside. And I got hold of this book because um, I saw theatre sports on the television. And then impro workshops, the people from the Bois Theatre in Brisbane, Brisbane Theatre Sports, came down to the Gold Coast to do workshops. And a friend of mine said, Shall we go? Now, you're not meant to do that as a Jehovah's Witness, definitely not. But we snuck off and went. And we, they knew there was something weird about us. We couldn't say we were Jehovah's Witnesses because they would think we were weird. And also we would be bringing reproach on Jehovah's name. I.e. we shouldn't have been there. So don't tell them you're a witness. If you're in a nightclub, don't say you're a witness because, you know, um, doesn't look good. But they knew there was something weird about us because we couldn't do scenes about sex or any, we were very awkward and quite virginal. I mean, very extremely virginal in my case. Um, and so uh, I, but they recommended this book and I read it in one go and I would just read bits of it again. And the elders the elders found out we were going to this thing and we that got stopped, obviously. We weren't allowed to do it anymore. But I was able to improvise like poems in my head and scenarios in my head because of this book. Because what this book does is it's, you know, and, and now some of it you will find if you read it now as a Gen Z, some of it you will find the language you might find dated or that kind of thing because it was written in 1979. Um but it is an extraordinary journey into the mind of Keith Johnston, who himself was called um, an uncreative person or a difficult child, or and he he tells this story of training to be a teacher and being given a a lesson by an art teacher, and which they were they found very difficult, and then he showed the paintings of what he thought were much more advanced students and they were eight-year-old children. And he realized at that point, he said, I was never the same. I never recovered from it. He said, because I realized my education had worked against me, not for me. And Keith says, people think teachers are dealing all dealing in the same commodity that bad teachers dealing. It have give you a little bit and uh, of a good thing. And good teachers give you a lot of a good thing. And he says, they're not, they're dealing in opposite commodities. Bad teachers are destructive. Bad teachers are making you anxious. Bad teachers are making you self-conscious. Bad teachers are teaching you not to trust yourself. And good teachers are freeing you. And when I went to, I then got to work with Keith. I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I got to go to Canada and work with Keith. And I also worked with a brilliant teacher who now lives in Australia, Canadian called Patty Stiles. And she now teaches and, and performs in Melbourne. And um, Keith, uh, Patty taught me most of what I know from Keith, but I got to work with Keith and we got to bring Keith over to London quite a few times. And I've worked with Keith a lot over the years. And Keith said to me, when I went to Oxford University, he said, I told him, I said, Keith, I'm going to Oxford. And he went, "Mm, the thing is with Oxford, he said, if, um, he's British, by the way, um, if if, if Oxford, I don't know, but places like Oxford, the, the trouble is they're going to narrow your taste. And they're going to make you like fewer and fewer and fewer things. By the time you leave Oxford, you'll you'll only really be able to admire very few things or like or enjoy very few things. Now, a university where they made you like everything and opened your taste up, that would be a university I would be interested in going to. And I was like, it's such a Keith way of looking at the world. It's so brilliant.
0: I, I, I love it. He's right. That, that's what I'm trying to do with Five of My Life, which is rather than the algorithms recommend things that are similar to other things, is... You hear guests mentioning things and talking about things that you might never have read otherwise. So like me reading the book, I love that book, but I would never have read, have read it if it hadn't been for you. Yeah. And, and one of the things Keith said, which really uh, stuck in my mind and made me want to ask you a question, he said, you can't learn anything without failing. And I want to ask mm-hmm. you, how, how good are you at failing and what have been some of your most useful failures?
1: Oh, I mean, Keith made me really good at failing. I just watched the Brené Brown Call to Courage, the new Netflix Brené Brown lecture. And I did a gig with her in Nashville, actually, and I saw her talk about this. But she she's expanded on it. And she says, she uses that Teddy Roosevelt quote about the critic is not the important man, it's the man in the arena who gets in the arena and sweats and stuff. And she said, I tell people, if, you, if you're going to live your life in the arena, you are going to get your ass kicked. And... They say I, I understand that's a risk. No, no, it's a certainty. And when she said that, I cried because I was like, it "Me every time I fail or uh, you know I work really hard on something, it doesn't go. It doesn't go, you know, that for whatever reason it it can't move forward. I'm in the arena. I'm having a go at this. I'm in the game, and that's all I really want is to be in the game, to be taken seriously in the game. I don't have to win every time. Keith once said to me, I was. Our improv company got so good. We were doing certain formats that we became excellent at. And then we nearly had our own television show and it didn't go. Someone else took over the TV network, blah, 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 same old story. And we all kind of lost faith a bit, I think. And our shows started to become really eggy and bad and we just couldn't. We were so good. And I was like, what happened? What happened? Keith came to watch. I said, Keith, can you come and watch? We're really, we're struggling. And he went, "Mm -hmm." The end, he went, yeah. Deborah, it's not enough to be all right with failure. You have to enjoy being bad. And that, that's the thing, is Keith would say a clown is someone who fails and stays good-natured. And it's true. If a clown gets in his little car, goes from one side of the circus ring to the other, buys a pint of milk and comes back successfully, will be disappointed but if he goes halfway across and his wheels fall off his car and he gets out and goes, oh, fucking hell, i am to be an hour for the AA now. This is, oh, how long have I... Then we can see that at home. We can see people angry and frustrated at home. A clown finds it funny or curious, he's curious or she's curious that the wheels have come off the car and the clown tries to put the wheels back on and the wheels keep falling off, but the clown never gets irritated by the clown's failure. And that's what... So, so Keith always says if you stay good-natured on stage when you fail... The audience will enjoy it because they're not used to seeing that. So I think I would say I have – Patty always used to make a say in class at the top of the workshop, we suck and we love to fail. And I taught students at RADA that, and I'd say don't say that in anyone else's class, though. They won't get it. But it really does help you. Um, I talk about collecting data when students leave RADA. Like, RADA's like NIDA, if anyone's not heard of it in Australia, but um, – I say the first year you're going to get. You're all you're doing is learning how to audition. What works for you? What works if you go going really confident? What works if you go in a bit low status? What works if you over prepare, under prepare, go in and improvise? All you're doing is collecting data. Take notes. Take notes. Take notes. Your your job is not to get a job. Your job is to work out what kind of audition process is right for you, and. Every time they ring me and go, I got the job, because they weren't going in desperate, going, please give it to me. They were going in curious as to what would be in this room and curious to the process. And that person is more hireable.
0: I have to say that the book, I mean, I'm not in, in your in your game, in your industry, your, your amazing spontaneity shot, but it's, I think it's relevant to people who aren't. I mean, I mean, I, I, just Oh, skills for life. That's that's right, skills for life. Now, moving you on, we're going to stay in the um, uh, seventies for your song. Um, And now, obviously, I'd heard of this song. Uh, It's Gloria Gaynor's nineteen seventy-eight. I will survive, smash hit. But I hadn't heard the story behind it. So this has genuinely—it's been such a delight getting to know you and your choices via research. Is you, you know about the, the story when it was released? I Will Survive. No. Oh well, Tell me. Well, well, here we go. So it was released, I mean, unbelievably, as the B-side. Oh. It, uh, the A-side is called Substitute. If you go onto YouTube, it has 12,000 oh. views versus 120 uh-huh. million for I Will Survive. Somebody put it on by mistake... A DJ they handed the disc and they put the wrong side on and played it and, and the rest is history. But if you listen to Substitute, which I really recommend <laughs> that you do because yeah. it goes to the guilty feminist but vibe, yes. is, it is the most unempowering, embarrassing, uh-huh, uh-huh. I will be your substitute whenever you want me, however you want me, if you're bored with her, you can have me, I'll be here just waiting. What? Oh, so yes! it's the opposite
1: of I will survive. It's, it's not the
0: complete opposite. Don't...
1: Walk out the door. Don't no, turn around no, now.
0: No, the total opposite. I was, I was laughing so my not. ass off. Listen, but so- it's
1: also a bit of Keith Johnston in there because Keith would say, "Just put your stuff out." He, he always says, oh, "the the time, the the time." Often that a runner will break their record is when they think, "Oh, I'm not feeling that great today. I'll just go for it." But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do well today. It's not, it's like when they stop trying so hard to be good. So it doesn't really surprise me that a B-side is is the undiscovered gem, and as soon as it's discovered, it's like. Yeah, because you think this is just a B-side. We won't try hard to make this the best song in the world and you just let your talent be, you, you're you allowed to, you're able to access your talent. We often say your your talent is your obvious, what's obvious to you. Um, so that's really interesting.
0: Can I ask, what are your surprise successes? What what, what are your versions of of a B-side B- oh, smash?
1: Oh, The Guilty Feminist. Oh, 100%. So I'd basically given up on the industry. I had my own... BBC Radio 4 show, which is a big Radio 4 here is a big deal. It's it's um it's how most things end up on the television through Radio 4. And I had my own Radio 4 show with my name in the title, and I still couldn't get an agent. And I would because I would and I've I've kept the emails. I remember writing off an email saying, I've got this Radio 4 show and the deal is yet to be done. So there was an agents fee there. And obviously this is a big platform. Um, would you come and see the live show that it's been commissioned on with a view to representing me? I'm thinking, well, they, at least they'll come and have a look now. At least they might not want to sign me, but they'll have come and have a look. And the emails I got back, I, two that I remember and I've kept, um, one was, I can't consider any one of the female persuasion. That might sound sexist, but it's not. This was in 2015, 2014, 2015. How is that not sexist? It's not long ago. This is not long ago. <laughs> Um, another one, we're a bit saturated girl-wise at the moment. So we can't consider you because you're of the female persuasion. Like I've been persuaded to be female. Um, I honestly, no one could persuade me. Why? What? Saturated girl-wise. I was like, what? Um, so I just thought, look, the industry do not want me. Uh, my last agent had dropped me because I can't get women on the television. And then I got my own meeting at the BBC and he went, well, if you're going to get your own meetings. So it was such a difficult climate for women. And I thought the industry do not want me. Um, I have built up a big um, speaking business, so I would go and do into businesses and do something between a stand-up comedy show and a TED Talk, which was very successful, and I had other things going on, writing scripts, um, you know, all sorts of things going on. So I thought, look, if stand-up comedy and the comedy industry, the panel shows, and if if it doesn't want me, no matter what I do and no matter how many times I prove myself – that show, by the way, that Radio Four show won the Writers Guild Award for best radio comedy. Still couldn't get an agent, and it, it was it was blatant sexism, like blatant on the page. It's because you're a woman, like it was absolutely blatant. And um, I thought, well, the industry don't want me, so I do, I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to I'm going to do a Keith Johnston. I'm not going to I'm not going to knock at that door anymore. And podcasting was you know quite new, burgeoning, emerging. And I thought, look, even if we get. Say a thousand regular listeners who really want, even five hundred who really want to hear what we have to say, then that means you know every week or fortnight or however long ever regularly you do it, five hundred people listening. If you have five hundred people come to a theatre, you'd be thrilled. Thousand people in theatre, you'd be thrilled. So I just thought I'm going to find my small, small niche audience who hear, who who want to hear what I have to say. I'm going to do it live in a venue that say that holds thirty to fifty people. Um, and I've got mates, and a few people have come to that, I reckon. Um, and we'll see how we go. And as soon as I gave up, Bridget Christie, actually, who you, I'm sure you know, um, is a brilliant comedian. Um, she said to me, "You'll never find your audience till you say the thing you're too scared to say." And I thought, "Well, that's right for you, Bridget. What you want to say is strident feminism, and you, you, what you're saying is so noble. What I have to say secretly is ignoble. It's I'm a feminist, but, and that's how the show starts. I'm a feminist, but." and we do an admission. One of the first things I ever confessed was, it's true, I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march, popped into a department store just to use the loo, got distracted trying out face cream. When I came out, the march was gone. And I thought, the feminists are going to kick me out of the club. What I want to say is, I don't know if I'm good enough to be a feminist. I don't know if I'm doing this right. There are things I'd like to build muscle on. There's things, does this matter? Is this funny? And the first episode, we were hoping for 2,000 listeners because that's good for a new podcast, got 10,000. And I was like, ooh. So we came back. It was just before Christmas 2015, uh, 20, 20, December 2015, just before Christmas. We we recorded it, put it out. So January 2016, we thought, well, this has actually got legs. We got a brilliant r- review in The Guardian, like a rave review. And I'd been trying to get reviews in The Guardian for years, hadn't hadn't been able to. So sometimes you just hit the zeitgeist, I think. Then next, the next show we did, like 300 people turn up. It, it's been going five years. We've had 85 million downloads in that time. 85 million. I mean, that's people listening to it every week. That's not 85 million individuals, but it's a lot of people. And we can tour the world. You know, like I can tour the world. And it turns out when I just gave up, in a way, trying to impress and please the patriarchal structures And when I'm out of that, I'm in my own thing. I'm doing my own thing. And I don't mind how large the audience is as long as there's a a genuine connection. And I'm going to confess my worst insecurities, my biggest hypocrisies. I'm going to say the thing I'm too scared to say. Suddenly there they were, like hundreds and thousands of women, uh, people of minority genders, some cis men who were all like, we feel like this too. We also worry we're not good enough. We also, I also meant to, watched that four hour documentary on the suffragettes and instead watched Say Yes to the Dress or Married at First Sight. I I don't, I'm not perfect, but we, I believe you don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change. And so the reason I Will Survive is important to the Guilty Feminist is when we tour the show live, and I, I will say Australia is always my favourite tour. Like I tour, tour around the UK, um, I taught, I've i taught America, Canada I love going to New Zealand as well We had an incredible time January, February last year in Australia And then we went to New Zealand the Wellington Arena was a really special show But I don't think there are more special shows Than the ones we've done in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane If I'm honest I, I, There are I do love Vicar Street in Dublin I have a real They are They know how to bring a rock concert to a podcast recording I'll be honest but my God, when I go back to Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, when I say backstage, "Are you ready for the Guilty Feminist?" the roar that goes up. And when I come out to the stage, I think partly people are grateful I've made the long plane journey. I'll be honest, a lot of you, a lot of the applause is for the twenty-four hour flight. If I'm absolutely being truthful, and it next, and I'm coming back in October, if I do have to sequester for two weeks, can you imagine the applause that I'll get after that? And I'll, a lot a lot of it is people going, "Thank you for making the journey," but. It's more than that. It's it's women coming together and people of minority genders coming together as a tribe and an army and a space where they feel completely safe, where they know it's going to be very funny, very entertaining, very open, very vulnerable. And what we can also really dig deep and talk about things that matter. And we can cry on stage together and we can, we can get angry together. And so... There's no better song at the end. We always have it at the end when we have a musician. And it, when I come back in October, um, I am going to have a musician touring with me. I won't say who it is just in case it goes wrong and everyone gets disappointed. Um, but we are, because of COVID, um, but we are we, we all stand up and we sing. Anyone who wants to and can stands and uh, and sings and dances. And we all just jump around singing, I Will Survive. Because there's something, Nigel, about that song that it just says, look, you can turn up here feeling down, crushed, not good enough, beaten around by this system. Just have run through the gamut of emotions today. Not sure you're up to the job, but you will survive, and we will survive if we're together. And it's a joyful song. That is a feminist anthem because it's about the fight.
0: So moving to your place, you chose an American singer for your song and an American location for your place. You've chosen the first cafe in America to serve cappuccino. Cafe Reggio in Greenwich Village, New York. Tell us about that.
1: So, I was in America in the 90s. Um, I was a nanny in Connecticut. And I used to, it was like a gap year thing, except I was a Jehovah's Witness. So, there were no gap years. It was just, I watched, I mean, traveling was frowned upon, but I just had got to the point where I didn't care and I just went. And on the weekends, it was like an hour from where I lived in Westport in Connecticut. I could jump on the train and be in Grand Central Station in an hour, and I had friends there. And Cafe Reggio, I think I found it in a guidebook. It's in, so you know when, when Harry Met Sally, where there's the the arch in Washington Square, where he first drops her off. So that's in the village. And the village has always been a very bohemian area, lots of writers and artists and painters and jazz cafes and things like that. And I found it, I think through a guidebook, because it recommended it. And it, Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, used to live in the Brownstone across the road, and that's where she wrote Little Women. So it's a very historical area. It's a real Walt Whitman area. And the thing about Café Reggio is it never changes. Like you can see pictures of it from the 50s and the decor's the same, the chairs are the same. It was an Italian family and they have Renaissance paintings on the wall. I mean, obviously not by masters because someone some would steal them, but they can't be that valuable or they've just been there for so long people don't know how valuable they are. I don't know. Um, I mean, I imagine they are quite valuable, but they, they've they been there since forever. The pictures, the pictures are the same. So right through the Madman area it looked the same. The cash registers, they're still there. The original coffee machine still there. And they always hand wrote out all the bills. And they did that till about four years ago. Now they've finally gone on to computerized bills. But the menu's the same. The menu's always the same. And it's it's this glorious piece of old world New York. And I used to go and sit there when I was a young Jehovah's Witness on a, on a non-gap year. And I used to see next to me at a table, you know, there'd be a young woman who was clearly at New York University, which is all around, sitting opposite some young man and they'd be kind of nervously talking about philosophy and they'd have books on the table and they clearly, is this a date or this isn't a date? And I always remembered because I, there was, uh, because I remember, I think I'd seen Dead Poets Society and that Walt Whitman quote, um, the power, what's basically asking the question, what's the meaning of life? And the answer is, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. And I remember thinking, I can't really contribute a verse. Like I'd wanted to write, I'd wanted to be in show business. I'd wanted to do all of these things. I wanted to, I'd wanted to write My Little Women, I'd wanted to, you know, make films like New York filmmakers. I'd wanted to do all these things. And I couldn't really contribute a verse because my verse was the verse of the Watchtower Society. It was the only thing you were allowed to say. And, but just being in New York at that point was its own achievement. It felt like, a, you know, this, this, I'm here, you know, I'm here. But I could see all these young people around me contributing a verse and preparing to contribute their verse and having these experiences, like dates and philosophical arguments and essay crises, staying up all night writing their paper. And then I left, came back to London. And I decided from that point on, I was never going to go back to another Jehovah's Witness meeting unless I wanted to. I was never going to go out of guilt again. I never went again. Went straight to improv class because that was the last thing that had made me happy that I'd sneaked out to. Reread my Keith Johnson's improv, went straight to improv class. Within a year and a half, I'd applied to Oxford. I'd gotten in. I wrote a play at Oxford that got chosen for the Cameron McIntoshney Writing Festival and was produced. Um, so I'd started my improv company, my own improv company. Had In my second year at uni, I'd brought Keith Johnston over to do a big show for the Royal Court Theatre, which was where he'd started out in London in the 50s and 60s. And I'd started to contribute my
0: verse. Just amazing hearing how that sort of sliding doors moments and, and that cafe. Oh, Mr Parisi was the chap that set it up. And that coffee machine that you mentioned, it's from 1902 and it's still there. And, and it, it leads me to want to ask you, is, is that chap who is now no longer with us obviously left a legacy where the cafe he, he founded basically 100 years ago is being talked about on a podcast 100 years later. Is when you think about the legacy that, that you are going to leave when you are in the ground, the, the hole in the ground that we're all heading to, what, what do you feel, what would you hope, what do you dream, what would you like your legacy to be?
1: Well, the thing is, I almost only know this when I go back to Café Reggio because I generally go back to New York once or twice a year and I always go there. And I go there because, do you remember as a kid, did your parents or grandparents ever measure you on a door so you could see how old, how tall you were at three or four or five?
0: Yeah, my, I can't move house because I've got four kids and we've got that thing on the kitchen wall. and
1: Exactly that. So Café Reggio is my marks on the pantry door. Because I go back there and it's not neutralized by the everydayness, by an everyday experience. It's something I go back once or twice a year and suddenly it's like I can remember being this young Jehovah's Witness thinking, I'm never going to contribute a verse. And it's very easy to compare your achievements and your failures with last year's achievements and failures or yesterday's or now I should be here. Why am I not here? And when I go back to Cafe Reggio, I can sit there and think, oh, I have a big show in the Guilty Feminist. It means a lot to a lot of people, and I'm going to perform it tonight here in New York City, and people are going to come. And people, when we played New York City in January last year, people flew in from Bermuda, people flew in from Texas, people flew in from all over for this place of connection, this joyful place of connection and resistance. And I can sit in that cafe now and see evidence that the chairs are the same, the tables are the same, the menu's the same, the mirror's the same, the loo's in the same place, the colour scheme's identical, the paintings are still there, and there's the coffee machine from 1902. But I am different. And I think that the coffee shop that stands 102 years later, that's – that's his powerful that's his powerful play though that's that's his verse that he's contributed to the powerful play. and it's meant a lot to a lot of people. and it's been the scenes of a lot of business meetings and a lot of dates, a lot of breakups and a lot of essay crises. And I hope that mine, more than anything is to say to individuals who are not who are not automatically accepted, or they're automatically ruled out because of something about their identity, whether that be race, gender, gender expression, gender identity, disability, sexual orientation, or a combination of those things. Your verse matters and you will find your audience. And it doesn't matter if you find 10, 50, 100 people who when they listen to you or see what you've painted or or. In some way or another, read what you've written or used what you've made or used the app that you've, you've developed. They've understood that some other human being feels like them. And you've shared your experience of what it is to be human. And there's not just one group of people who get that experience. You have something powerful to offer precisely because you, people like you, have been marginalised and those voices haven't come through. Your voice is more important now because we haven't heard it before. The more unique your experience, the more marginalised and oppressed you've been, the more we desperately need you to take centre stage. And centre stage has changed. It's shifted. Centre stage is not just created by the gatekeepers anymore. The internet means that the artists have taken control of the means of production. And wherever you are, whatever you want to say, you find a platform to say it and somebody will see it and feel what it is to be human from your point of view and say, hey, that's how I feel too. All
0: right. what, what, what a wonderful verse for you, to, for you to contribute. We're moving on to your, your fifth and final choice on Five of My Life, which is a, it's a natural link to some of the things you've just been saying, Deborah, because uh, I, I think I know the story that you might be about to tell. Uh, you've chosen your passport. Could you tell us why you've chosen that?
1: Oh, God, yes. Um, so I have documented how I didn't feel I could go back to Australia because I needed to, once I made that decision to stay in London, I I just, once I made that decision to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, I needed to, I'd always wanted to live in London, but I needed to be away from that particular high control group and that religion in order to develop and grow and evolve and not get sucked back in. Um, So I was seeing a man at the time uh, who said, well, I'll marry you. And I mean, we were together, we were totally a couple, but we hadn't been together very long. And I said, no, 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 no. I mean, in those days, Australian girls used to pay gay men to marry them. Um, and gay men have selfishly campaigned to marry each other now, um, leaving Australian girls and young women out in the cold entirely. I don't know what they were thinking with their gay rights. Um, being ironic, don't write in. <laughs> um, and so and Tom said, no, I don't want anyone else to marry you, and I don't want to drive you to the airport. So I think it was it's almost one of the last romantic reasons to get married, because the state's the state, you know, is keeping your part, sort of thing. So I married Tom Selinsky, still married to him now. Regular listeners of the podcast will know it's produced by Tom Selinsky, my husband, and we've been on some adventures together. Uh, we got very married very young and we've been on some real adventures together. But having a British passport and an Australian passport, I, I had indefinite leave to remain and I lost my Australian passport once and the passport office had uh, not kept good records, they'd lost a load of records. So I couldn't prove I'd had indefinite leave to remain and they nearly deported me. And it was terrifying. And it was at that point I realized, oh, I have no rights here. I don't have a right to live here. I've got to get a passport. So I did. I straight away got a passport. And it was only, no, I had two passports and and of course with a British passport you could travel anywhere in Europe. Lol. Um until so we ludicrously campaigned to allow ourselves no access to anywhere without a visa. I don't know why. Um But having two passports, that means two states and New Zealand, because I've got an Australian passport, have to have me if I'm in a desperate, if if war breaks out over here or I just don't want to live here anymore. And when I go back to Sydney, I think, why don't I live in Sydney? My whole life's here. But Sydney's incredible. It really is incredible. I love Melbourne too. Um, But I didn't get it. I didn't get what that meant until I was doing a series of podcasts with refugees because I'd started doing some work with um, Choose Love who work with refugees and young Syrian man who didn't have his papers yet came and did a podcast. And I said, where are you staying? And he, at this point he was sofa surfing. And I said, well, do you want to come and mind our cats for three weeks? Cause we're going away and we had a spare room and he said, and I said, we'll come and go in that time. But basically, and he said, Oh my God, I love cats. I miss my cat in Syria. And you know, so, He came for three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, um, a mutual friend said, I'm looking for somewhere for Steve to stay for three months so he can unpack because he hasn't had a home in five years. And Steve is from Damascus, which is the oldest inhabited city in the world. He was doing an architecture degree at uh, the University of Damascus, which is like an oxbridge of the Arab world. He was a bodybuilder. He was into fashion. And then for five years, because of the Syrian war, he had had no home at all and he'd been stateless and homeless and, you know, been living in refugee camps. So he hadn't had anywhere to unpack. He'd come from a kind of, you know, a life like you you or I might have had. And suddenly he had nothing. And so he hadn't unpacked really properly for five years except to live in refugee camp. So I said, yeah, that was meant to be my room of one's own. We just knocked through. So we only just newly had a spare room and it was meant to be my like room of one's own writing room. And I thought the 77 million people displaced, it's a bit much to say, I've got to have a writer's room like Virginia Woolf. What year do you think this is? So I said, yeah, okay, let Steve can stay for three months. And in that three months, I really got to know him. And he was waiting for his papers to see if he was going to get a political asylum in the UK. And he said to me, oh, I think I've got to go and collect this letter. I think I think it's it. And I was like, I'm not sure that it is. I could see the his friend had sent him a picture of the letter. I was like, I'm not sure it is. Um, but he went off to get it. And I was texting him like, you know, what's happening? What's happening? And he texted back and he said, um, everybody bad thing that's ever happened to me is falling off the side of this piece of paper. And he sent me a picture of the piece of paper that said he could legally live in the UK. And he came home and he came into the kitchen and he hugged me for like 10 minutes. I just held me. And I suddenly realised what it is to lose your human rights because he hadn't had the right to a doctor or a lawyer for five years. He hadn't had the right to stand on any piece of ground he was standing on and breathe the air. What happens when you're a refugee, if you can't get political asylum somewhere, is that the only place that you will live is somewhere you will surely die. And what that means is it's effectively illegal for you to live on planet earth. And nowhere are you entitled to breathe the air. And that was such it like hit me in the stomach. I just went, "Oh my god." Like he was like, "I'm a person again. I'm a full person again." Because refugees are treated like cattle. They're not treated like people. They're shoved on, they're shunted on. Nobody wants you. You don't have a right to anything. You don't have a right you don't have a right to education, you don't have a right to to work a job, you don't have a right to earn money, you don't have a right to anything. So you're standing in a queue in a refugee camp hoping for somebody to so a volunteer to make, you know, to give you some food that somebody else has Done a charitable nation for which is no way to live you know there's no purpose in that there's no dignity in that and refugees are so desperate for just an, any opportunity to have a little patch of ground where they can start again and find an opportunity.
0: That's just an amazing story and it incredibly speaks to the generosity of of spirit that you would welcome him into your home and your family. Is he still with you Steve?
1: Yeah oh yeah three three and a half years later Steve is as much family to me as anyone in the world. Uh, Steve is a hundred percent my family and I couldn't love him more. And we're really close. He, he's also a storyteller. Um, he is, he is a, just a brilliant storyteller and we're working on a show together, um, for him called the alcohol of the soul. Uh, cause he was raised, uh, without being allowed to listen to music cause he was also from a very religious family. Um, and it's about his coming to music, but through, partly through, you know, becoming up and growing and becoming a teenager and wanting to listen to music and partly through the refugee experience. And he's a genius storyteller and he is just a beautiful human being in every single way. And like, I just noticed things like, I mean, there's so many wonderful things about, you know, opening, a, a refugee is just someone displaced. It's just you or me, but can't be at home anymore. And I think COVID has really brought home to us that things can happen to you. Steve wrote a brilliant thing for, that you can look up online. It's for the UK British GQ um, that's called We're All Refugees Now. And it's about how we all now get something can happen to you. You don't want it to happen. You've got no control and you just have to adapt and you don't know when it's going to stop happening. And that's COVID. So you have to adapt. You can't do your old job anymore in the way that you did it. Maybe you can't do it at all. Maybe you get fired. Maybe you can't live where you were living before. Maybe you get stuck living somewhere else. You you were visiting your gran, and now you're stuck there because you're not allowed back over the border. And so I hope it's given us all more empathy for refugees. But the but the further leap is if you lose your human rights, if you lose your passport, if no state will claim you, if. Australia was somewhere where you were going to die and no other state. I'm telling you right now, Australians would put their kids in boats and get off that coast if they were going to die. If there were bombs raining down, if someone bombed your house and if you stayed there, you were going to get bombed and you were going to watch your kids die and one of them had already died and one of them had, had their leg blown off, you'd get in a boat and you'd get them out of there. Nearly all parents do that or find a way of keeping their children safe and they just got to hope. You've got to be like, we hope New Zealand will still have all of us. We hope that deal is up. What if New Zealand closes that down, et cetera, and so forth? you just got to hope someone else wants you. And so my passports, my British and Australian passports, have become the most valuable possession that I ever could have had because I have a new understanding because of living with Steve And He's taught me so much. It's such a valuable experience. And one thing I wanted to make sure he felt in that first year of living here was that this was his home because his response, if say my goddaughter was coming to stay, he'd be like, oh, well, I'll get out of the room. And I'd be like, well, that's your room. Why would you get out of your room? Like, we'll, you know, we'll put her on the sofa bed and blah, blah, blah. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. I'll make myself scarce. And I was like, well, you can, I'll go away for the weekend. I'll go and stay with a friend or something. And I'd say, well, you can do that, but that's your room. She's going to sleep up here. And I had to really work with him to get him to a point where he felt this was home because he didn't feel entitled. He didn't feel entitled to be anywhere. And as I said, you know, he was from a middle-class upbringing in Syria, but he'd lost entitlement to a bed. He, he, and now I will say, oh, is it all right if so-and-so, are you, are you, away? are you, you know, away this weekend? Is it okay if someone stays in your bed? Because I know he'll say, oh no, actually I'm not, it's not convenient. Or he'll say, oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'll, you know, change the sheets or whatever. Um, because now it's his home.
0: I, I have to say, Deborah, it has been just amazing hearing you talk about your five choices and the stories. Uh, just just inspiring and moving. And I am so grateful to, to, to have you on. And I, just, just, just a very thought provoking um, hour for me. Uh, I'm going to move to the the last question, the last traditional trick question on Five of My Life, the one that Mary responded to with, uh, with your name, is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why?
1: Do you know, I'd like to hear Steve Alley, I've just realised as I was talking about him, because his stories will surprise you, his journey will be different from any one's you've ever heard, his English is better than mine. Uh, I'll often say, oh, the amount of people that were down there today, and he'll say, isn't it number of people? It's amount of money. <laughs> it's number of people because you can count people. His English is ridiculously good. His vocabulary is incredible. His and his relationship with things is different from yours or mine. And with places is different from yours of mine, yours and mine. And with films and music is different from yours or mine. And I don't think I've listened to quite a lot of Five of My Life and I've loved. Uh, so many of the episodes I've li- I've liked them all, and some of them i thought were blew me away. But I've never heard anyone like Steve on, so I would like to nominate Steve.
0: I was sort of secretly hoping that you were. I am so <laughs> I am so pleased, and and you are Deborah Francis White. You are such a just a legend, and thank you, thank you. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at uh, your next tour in Australia.
1: I just absolutely can't wait to be there. I can't wait to see our guilty feminists. It's it's just such a privilege and a joy. It's the tour I enjoy the most: Australia, and New Zealand. So I, I'm just I'm just crossing my fingers and waiting for it.
0: Are you going to play substitute as well as I will survive?
1: Yes, I will. <laughs> if you come to the show, Nigel, Definitely. I will. I, I, when are you coming to the that, show? That is a
0: guarantee. I will. I will talk. Where to- do you live? I, I live in Sydney, and I will guarantee I'll be there the first night.
1: Great. Okay. If you come, I'm going to say. This is Nigel and he taught me this story uh, and we are going to have a discussion around these two sides then of Gloria Gaynor and the side that why why the the B-side appeal to women more than going, oh, I'm your substitute. It's like, yeah, screw you, I'll survive. (laughs) I Um, love it. Nigel, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you and thank Tom as well. I will. Lots of love. Thank you. Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish. Listener.